I don't feel like I've woken up yet. I still feel asleep. And all the thoughts that I hope are a sermon just kind of roll through a fog. It would be awful if I fell asleep during my own sermon. That's a little bit how I feel. It has been not a terribly difficult week in terms of tasks. It's been a wearying week uh, as I watch some of you encounter the struggles of the curse or doubts, or I hear about faith that is failing and sin that seems to get the best of some of us. And so I come into the pulpit this morning, just like we sang a moment ago, it's fitting that we sang, Come ye Christians poor and needy, weak and weary, sick and sore. Because that's who most of us are this morning as we have come in to the church to hear the good news. After living through weeks that often preach the contrary to us. And so this morning as we dive into another passage in John's gospel, it's very fitting that Jesus will preach to us the good news of faith that conquers doubt. Because he is the Savior who conquers doubt. He is the Savior who has conquered sin and death and all of the curse. And we'll hear him repeatedly in the passage said, Peace be with you. And he will stare people in the eye often who don't want to believe him or feel too broken as if they can't believe in him. The great Dutch Reformed pastor and theologian, Airman Ritterboss, in his preface to his commentary on the book of John, called the Apostle John the Great Tradent, which is a fancy word for saying that John was the one in the line of tradition who has something of value to hand down to someone else. And he went on to explain that what John is doing in his gospel is coming to the church, a church that has already believed, to build and to strengthen and to deepen their faith by handing over to them the thing of supreme value, the story of Jesus' power and faithfulness and His redeeming love. The love that seeks out people like us who are weak and weary, sick and sore. Christians who are already Christians but still feel poor and needy. And so as John handed these things down to the church... He's included what we needed most desperately. He's included the foundations for our faith. Full and robust, confident lives of faith. Not just a one-time act of faith, but lives that deepen and grow in faith. Because we're putting all of our chips in the center of the table and betting everything we have on Christ. This is not Pascal's wager Bet on Jesus, because hey, why not? John preaches to us, as he did to these first churches, wager everything on Jesus because no one else is reliable. Wager everything on Jesus because he's the only Savior there is. And so this morning, as we read John's Gospel... Hear Jesus' invitation and John's invitation to bet everything that you have on Jesus. Not as a hedge bet, not as a side bet, 
but leaning full with all of your weight on Him. Little Christians, as we read through this morning, this is my question for you. And this would be my question to all of us, whether we are brand new and being introduced to the gospel, whether we have believed it for a day or a month or for 30 years. Is believing in Jesus something that we do once and then take for granted? Or is trusting in Jesus something we grow in over time? Is faith the kind of thing that is grown in us through the entirety of our lives? And if so, how does Jesus grow our faith? This is the good news. As Jesus encounters and conquers our doubts... In John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 11 through 31. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. He said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. But Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers. Say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and the place And then place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Join me as we pray together. Lord Jesus, we come this morning. Many of us, after simple and easy weeks, and many of us after difficult and heavy weeks. Many of us have wrestled with doubt. Some of us have never believed. Others of us have suffered the pains that linger in the curse while we wait for you to put it away finally. And in our struggles, we find our faith weak and fickle, And we struggle to trust you. Like so many have prayed before us, Lord Jesus, we do believe, but help our unbelief this morning. By the ministry of your word and the ministry of your spirit among us, would you grow and deepen our faith? Let us believe, not just intellectually, not rhetorically, not apologetically, Let us really trust with all of our lives, all of our weight, everything that we are. Let us fall into your embrace this morning and trust you. Because you are the Christ, our Savior and Messiah, our Lord and our God. Because you grow faith in us, let us find life in your name. We ask these things in your name. By the Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I put this passage together this way in the longer version instead of breaking up all of the smaller stories of Jesus' encounters with his disciples and with Mary and with Thomas and John's purpose. Because all of these stories build up and fit together as John drives to tell us the purpose of writing the entire gospel, we have before us stories of Jesus encountering disciples who did not believe or who had believed but couldn't throw their weight into it and really lean on Jesus and trust Him, who couldn't imagine what His resurrection might be or what it might mean or even that it could be real. And over and over, Jesus conquers their doubts. And at the end of all of those stories, John says, So I've written all of these things so that you would be like the ones that Jesus praised when he was talking with Thomas, those who have not physically seen Jesus, but through this gospel and by the work of the Spirit, you have encountered him. I've written these things, John says, so that you would believe that he is really the Messiah, really the Savior, not in the abstract, but your Savior, the one who unties the knots of all of your pain, any abuse you have suffered, undoes all of your doubts with faith that He grants and that He grows. I have written all of these things, John said, so that you would believe He is that Savior and that by believing in that gospel, you would have real, full life in His name. In the middle of this, 
early on in the middle of one of the stories when Jesus encounters his disciples inside the locked room the first time around. We have all of the enigmatic statements, and so that we're not distracted by them, I want to deal with them quickly and then move on to what I think is John's point in this collection of smaller stories that make one big narrative this morning. Jesus has this very dramatic commissioning for his disciples, just like he has prayed for them in the high priestly prayer of John 17, just like he has promised them in John 13, that as the Father sent him into the world, he's going to send them to minister to his lost sheep, his lost elect who are still out in the world, who need to be preached to, who need to come to faith and be discipled and nurtured and cared for. So Jesus says, just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And then he has that really odd action where he exhales on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and then tells them the odd tasks that will be theirs and the odd responsibilities that will be theirs in ministering or withholding forgiveness for some. Jesus is dramatically enacting what will become reality for them at Pentecost. This is, just like all of the precursors in John's Gospel, one more glimpse of what Jesus will do with them, what he is actively doing with them, but what's not fully theirs yet in apostolic ministry and in the ministry of the church, the ministry that belongs to us as his disciples now. Jesus breathes out on them a gesture very reminiscent, almost evocative of God breathing life into Adam in Genesis 2. Jesus dramatizes the wind of the Spirit that will come upon them at Pentecost, the wind of the Spirit that he proclaimed in Nicodemus in John 3. And he tells them what ministry is waiting for them, but this isn't actually the inception of the ministry. You know that because they continue to wait. They wait all the way until Pentecost. And even if we didn't have Luke's account in Acts, we have the rest of what John tells us. This happens behind locked doors because they were hiding in a room with doors locked for fear of the Jews. And then don't miss what happens later in the passage. Next week, They're back in the room again with the doors locked. They've not gone anywhere. They've not ministered forgiveness to anyone. They have not acted in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't see Peter preaching in the streets. There's no powerful and convicting proclamation. There are no healings or miracles. It's been a week behind closed doors. Later in the gospel, they'll go fishing again. We still need Jesus to commission and restore Peter, and we need John's epilogue with questions about Christ's return. Jesus is giving them a glimpse of what will be theirs when the Spirit comes on them, and he will be the one to send the Spirit to minister to his people. And so he enacts that dramatically here. And because it's enigmatic, it grabs our attention. But don't be lost in that snippet inside this story. The larger story is Jesus continually 
encountering and confronting and conquering doubt. After this sermon, we're going to sing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." And we're going to sing the original version that we haven't sung here in a very long time. It includes lines that offend us as Calvinistic Presbyterians, like, "'How I've proved him o'er and o'er.'" And I'm so glad I learned to trust you. These things are not at all opposed to Calvinistic Presbyterianism. Because these are not, we've proved him apologetically with rational proofs like geometry problems. And this is not, I'm glad that I learned of my own accord, by my own ability and own intellect to trust you. This is what Jesus is doing for his disciples in this passage. Jesus is running up against the places where they put him to the test, and they say in their doubt he's not trustworthy. God is not powerful enough to raise him from the dead. God is not good enough or loving enough to protect us from those who hunt and persecute us. Jesus is not trustworthy enough to really minister truth through his church to overcome the doubts in some, at least as Thomas sees it. And over and over again, as Jesus' faithfulness is put to the test, he is proven. Like we will sing in a minute, we are proving him, these disciples are proving him, not by their own strength, by their failing. Just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, in their strength, his strength is made perfect. His strength is displayed and proven. Or like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the weakness and the foolishness of these people and disciples like us, these are the stages where Jesus chooses to show up and prove himself as faithful and good and powerful, and loving, and redeeming, and trustworthy. In this passage, Jesus' disciples are learning to trust him. And through his gospel, John has been leading us into the story of Jesus' faithfulness so that we would learn to trust him. He's doing it because faith is not a one-time act. We have seen these disciples trust him before. These aren't skeptics out on the street corners that have never met Jesus nor ever heard of him. These are his disciples who have left homes and jobs and walked around homelessly, itinerantly, being persecuted and mocked for three years. These disciples have believed him, but they need him to overcome their unbelief. It's this kind of mistaken view of faith that often leads people to assume that John was written like an evangelistic tract. A lot of people, and I'm sure you've heard sermons to this effect, a lot of people read those last few verses. These are written so that you may believe. They read those as if this is addressed to someone who has never believed and maybe never heard. 
But all along, John has been clear that he's writing for the church. He has explained things and assumed that we already know this story and he's filling it out. Because for John, faith and all of its effects are persistent and growing. It's like love in a marriage. Your love in marriage is not the one-time act of taking a vow on your wedding day. It's not the high point that your love felt, the peak in your dating relationship. Like love in a marriage, faith may peak, but it also may fluctuate in strength and feeling. But over the long haul, if it's genuine, it will be persistent. And over time, it will grow and deepen and fill out. And just the way that frustration in a marriage or in parenting or in any close friendship The same way that frustration is not immediately or inherently destructive for that love. In fact, that kind of frustration often deepens that love as it's worked through and conquered and put away. So doubts, when they are owned and confronted and tested and submitted to Christ himself, They're not only the inevitable pieces of a life of faith, the exceptions that prove the rule, the unfortunate places in the path that we like to forget. Just like the strains and tests in our relationship can deepen our love, doubt when it is encountered and conquered by Christ himself, it actually works to deepen our faith. And this has been true through the entire story of Scripture. This is the way that faith in God, as the God of his people and the faithful redeemer, is always couched in the narrative of his redemption. It's not normally given in a rational proof. The Old Testament is not a textbook on metaphysics and philosophical proofs for the existence of God. Instead, Moses and David and the other psalmists and all the prophets continually remember the things that God has done for his people by bringing them to the end of themselves where they see their faith tested and doubt creep in and fear grab hold of them. And they continually find God to be faithful. It's the story of being slaves in Egypt and brought up to a river, being brought up to the Red Sea, an insurmountable obstacle with an army bearing down behind you. And God showing up and being faithful and parting the sea and leading you across on dry land and defeating the army for you. It's the continual story of our unfaithfulness, not just in doubt, but in disobedience and rebellion, in persistent sin. It's that story written into the story of a God who is faithful to always embrace and forgive and overcome sin through slow, progressive sanctification to make us more and more like himself no matter how failing and weak we are. 
And so this is, of course, the story of John's gospel. This has been the story of disciples who come to him and question him, but cannot stick with him a lot of the time. They cannot keep up with what he demands as he asks them to trust him. It's Nicodemus coming to him at night because he's scared to ask him questions about the kingdom only to disappear for the rest of the story until after Christ's crucifixion. And in the meantime, faith has been grown by the faithfulness of Jesus so that Nicodemus will own him publicly. It's the story of Peter's denial, the apostle the brave disciple who promised to die with Jesus, who was willing to wield a sword in the garden, who can't even confront a servant girl and own up to knowing Jesus for fear that he'll be persecuted. It's the story of Peter's failure, knowing that he has disappointed Jesus irrevocably and irreparably, knowing that he's of no use, and we'll see next week, Jesus embracing Peter. It's the story that we have this morning with Mary thinking that the gardener has stolen Jesus because surely this is the tragic end of God's redemption. Everything that she has hoped on must have failed. Only to hear her name called out by the good shepherd like he promised to do in John 10... And when his sheep hear him call with his voice, they know and they believe because they belong to him. They know his voice and he calls them out by name. And so he conquers her doubt immediately just by saying her name. In the midst of her panic, all he has to say is Mary. And she knows it's him, and she believes, and she tells the other disciples the good news that Jesus has resurrected, his redemption is not through, it's not been thwarted, it's actually coming for them. And they lock themselves in a room. They build their own salvation. They're not singing, a mighty fortress is our God. They're not quoting the 46th Psalm that the name of the Lord is a strong tower And it's found trustworthy and reliable by all who rush into it for salvation. They've made their own strong tower with the flimsy lock on a wooden door, hoping that Jews won't find them and know what they've believed to this point, but now are sure must not be true. And all of this culminates in the story of Thomas. We've seen the brokenness of Mary weeping outside the tomb. We have seen the fear of the disciples locked together in a room, sure that Mary is deluded. And now we see Thomas, and we're not given the tone. We don't know how he said these words. Was he angry and indignant? Or was he intellectual and sophisticated when he told them what his faith would require? 
Was he raging and telling them that Jesus is so disappointing because he hasn't delivered on his promise and he will not believe that Jesus could be faithful in his own resurrection? Or is he listing out the empirical data that he will need? This needs to be submitted to me, preferably in triplicate. If he could show me the nail scars in his hands and his feet and in his side, then I'll take it under consideration and I'll submit it to my empirical criteria and I'll come up with a rational explanation and then I will believe. But until these things are submitted to me, I refuse. John doesn't tell us which it was. But it's clear from the context he doesn't share the brokenness Mary had outside of the tomb. We normally see this scene painted a different way. We normally see it with Jesus holding out his hands and Thomas kneeling with his hand in the scar and one hand on his side. And we assume that because Jesus says, stick your finger here, put your hand here, feel these scars. But the way John tells it, Thomas doesn't do that. Thomas melts and confesses with the most dramatic, most believing confession of the entire gospel, my Lord and my God. And it might make you uncomfortable, but I read it this way. A week later, locked inside the room once again, Still fearful, still not willing to trust that Jesus can care for them. Now arguing with Thomas, who has not seen Jesus for a week, who has persisted in his doubt. Whether it's with an air of anger or sophistication. Jesus shows up in that room behind their locked door and he confronts Thomas on his doubt. Not heavy-handedly. But without apology, he dares Thomas to gather his facts. He stands among them and says, peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas. And I think it's a dare. Go ahead, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand and place it on my side. Don't. Persist in your doubt. Believe me because I'm trustworthy. And John does not say that Thomas goes through the motions and gathers his data and reviews the facts. Thomas's doubts melt in the presence of Jesus, his Lord and his God. Thomas answers, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus answers, Have you believed, not because you have touched me and gathered all the facts you demanded, have you believed because you've seen me? Because you've encountered me physically. If you refuse to believe, blessed are those who have not seen me physically and yet have believed. Thomas becomes the perfect example of our rationalistic and modernistic way 
of demanding that Jesus submit himself to all of our own philosophical and empirical criteria. I need proof. I need evidence that demands a verdict. I need this or I need that laid out this way so that I will trust Jesus. And the way that Jesus teaches us to trust him is not by domesticating himself and submitting himself to whatever we would ask. Leslie Newbegin actually calls this the domestication of Jesus in the modern world. It is a scientific culture that loves the laboratory and loves litmus tests and data gathering and charting. As that kind of culture, we ask Jesus to submit himself to our lab so that we can test him in a controlled environment and gather the answers that we want, and then we'll believe him, and then we'll find him trustworthy. And what Jesus has done with all of these disciples, what John has said he's done in writing this story for us, this account, retelling and proclamation, all that Jesus is. What Jesus is saying that he has done is this. He has constructed the lab where we are tested and he proves himself by by demonstrating his faithfulness and his love and his power over and over again. Not in the places where we ask if he's wanting, but the places that he knows we are. He finds the holes and the places where we lack substance and he shows us his fullness. It's not primarily through arguments and reason. We don't build a bridge to faith in these rational ways. Instead, Jesus does have a logic. He does reason with us, but it's so that we can understand more fully what we've already believed about him and who he is as the Lord that we have already entrusted ourselves to. He tells us these things as he carries us along through life after we have already laid ourselves in his arms. It works a little bit like trying to teach my kids to jump off of a diving board into the deep end when they're young. My children stand on the edge of a board two feet above water. They're able to swim, and they're wearing a flotation device of some sort, and I'm swimming and treading water in the deep end. They couldn't sink if they hit an iceberg. And no matter how much I argue with them that this rationally makes sense, I am strong enough, the vest is buoyant enough, water is soft, I promise. The arguments don't make jumping off the board the second and third time any easier. If you have kids, you know trying to pull them out of a tree and getting them to jump into your arms or in the deep end of a pool, it can be very frustrating to argue with a four-year-old, we've done this before. Two times ago, I was swimming right here. You haven't drowned yet. And they may stand on the end of that board for five or ten minutes. 
They learn to trust by actually throwing themselves into your arms and over time finding you trustworthy over and over and over again. It's not the rationale. It's not the arguments. It's your trustworthiness as a parent, your love for them, your commitment to not let them sink. Proven in action over time. Demonstrated in their experience. And that's what Jesus has been doing for his disciples through the events of John's gospel. And that is what he does in the life of the church. That is what he does in our lives, both individually and corporately. He shows himself faithful over and over and over again. So that diving into his arms becomes easier, becomes simpler. It becomes expected because I know that he does not want my harm. And I know that he is not incapable of saving me. He is perfectly capable and perfectly willing to redeem. He may not redeem the way I want. He may not care for me the way I like. But over time, even those disappointments have become the training ground where, as John Newton says, he weans me away from my own will and my own demands, and I see his goodness as better than my own. That is what Jesus has done for Thomas. That's what he's done for Mary. That's what he's done for his disciples locked in the room. In one of his letters, John Newton, talking about the way that grace and faith operate, the way that grace operates on the believer so that faith matures and grows and what that looks like. He wrote three different letters explaining three different phases of growth in the Christian's life. I'll read you a portion from the last letters he's describing the most mature Christian, those old in their faith who have no trouble diving into and resting in Jesus' arms. Though as there is a growth in every grace, the older and more mature Christian, having had his views of the gospel and of the Lord's faithfulness and mercy confirmed by a longer experience, his assurance is, of course, more stable and more simple than when he first saw himself safe from all condemnation. It's not that, properly speaking, any more strength or stock of grace is inherent in himself than other Christians. He is in the same state of absolute dependence, just as incapable of performing spiritual acts, just as incapable of resisting temptations by his own power, as he was the first day he set out. Yet, in a sense, he is much stronger because he has more of a feeling of his constant sense and and his own weakness, the Lord has long been teaching him this lesson by a train of various events. And through grace he can say that he has not suffered so many things in vain. His own heart has deceived him so often that he is now in a good measure weaned from trusting it and therefore does not meet with so many disappointments. Having found again and again the vanity of all other helps, he's now taught to go to the Lord at once to find grace to help in every time of need. And it's in this sense that he is strong, not in himself, but in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
John has written an entire gospel recording all of the acts and all of the signs, all of the goodness of Jesus, so that we who do not presently have the privilege of viewing him face to face, physically seeing him, physically being embraced by him, can come to him in our time of need and weakness and doubt, submitting all of those things to him so that he will prove himself faithful to us over and over so that we learn to trust him, so that we are trained in this faith. This is his gracious means of growing faith in us. Whether we weep broken and undone in his presence like Mary, or try to build our own salvation locked in a room out of our own fear, or whether we insist that Jesus submit to our examinations and criteria, in his faithfulness, Jesus faithfully conquers our doubt. He enters into our fear and our brokenness, and even the sinfulness of our demands. He demonstrates over and over to us that He is faithful. I'll end with these things, but I'm going to leave these off of our podcast.